Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, but we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Dr. Michelle Jacobs professor, writer, consultant. Uh, We're going to be getting into her work. How did she get into consulting? We're going to talk about her company. And of course, we're going to talk about uh, things on the business side that'll help you take your consulting to the next level. So for those who'll be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible, will you please introduce yourself, Dr. Michelle Jacobs? And thank you, Dr. Will, for inviting me to be on your show. I really admire and appreciate the way that you encourage everyone to go for it, to have a clear vision of what they want for their lives, how they're going to help people, how they're going to make this world a better place, and to really you know, be inspired and courageous in our work, in our way of being. And so I'm Michelle Jacob, I'm the owner of Anahoy Mentoring Consulting Business and a small publishing company that I started to share my vision of helping people understand the importance of indigenous ways of knowing and being. And this work really complements the work that I do as a professor of Indigenous Studies and co-director of the Subsequatla program uh, at the University of Oregon. The Subsequatla program is a beautiful example of partnership with tribal nations, how universities can be in partnership with tribal nations. We operate as a consortium with the nine federally recognized tribes in the state of Oregon. And we train highly qualified American Indian Alaska Native students to become teachers who serve uh, the next generation of Native youth and to serve Native communities. And to date, we have 104 alumni from our program who have earned master's degrees and have served their communities. So my business is a way that I can take the work that I do in the university and really reach a broader audience and to work more quickly know, to implement my ideas with a faster pace that we can see in entrepreneurship as opposed to, you know, what is um, always possible within an academic institution. But the the work really does complement each other. And I see that as something that entrepreneurs uh, can really do, you know, to help people and to serve a broader audience. Awesome. So I'm always curious as to how people got to where they are. What did you think you would be doing when you were growing up? And what actually drew you to education? Mm. Well, I, uh, like many young people, I had some teachers I admired. I thought they had a wonderful presence and a way of relating um, to me as a young person. And I'm the youngest in my family, had three older brothers growing up. So I watched them you know, as younger siblings always do, we pay attention, what's going on? Uh, What do they enjoy? How are they being treated, right? And so we had some wonderful teachers 
uh, in our uh, public school here on the reservation. And um, you know, so those were some early role models. And so I would play teacher and uh, you know, always uh, was really interested in teaching. Um, of course, with indigenous peoples, we have education systems of our own that are thousands and thousands of years old. Uh, one of the main ways that uh, education system operates uh, traditionally amongst our people is through storytelling. And so children uh, were often taught by storytellers and by elders, you know, learning the legends or the traditional stories of our people. And in those, um, in that system of education, you know, so many wonderful values are upheld and are continuing to be upheld by our people. It's a, a way of learning and of growing that always values the child, that there's an understanding that every person in our community has something to offer. Everyone has a gift and that we all benefit when that child or that person understands what their gifts are and are able to use them to benefit all of us. Within that storytelling tradition, we also you know, have it affirmed how elders are so important. They're our most revered teachers, decades and decades of experience, of connection to place, deep understanding, of relationships and protocol, why things are the way they are, how they used to be, how they could be. Right? Elders are so wonderful in instructing us um, in those ways. And so really you know, these examples of seeing, you know, Western education, you know, in the public school and the reservation and the, the teachers who were kind and inspiring and saw potential in me, uh, as well as our traditional forms of education through storytelling, through spending time with elders. This made me always understand that education is good for our people. Mm. So as you mentioned, you are the founder of Anahui Mentoring uh, LLC. What is the story behind you creating the company? <laughs> oh gosh, you know, I would love to say that it, I had it all planned out nice and tidy and that things have unfolded just the way I anticipated. <laughs> but really, that's, that's not the way that it happened. And that's not actually how I do things anyway. Um, I'm very much a person and a scholar who uses and values an inductive process, an unfolding of seeing, hmm, this is where we are now. Now let's see what else happens next. Um, you know, working from the ground up. And, um, and so I thought the business was going to be primarily a speaking business, you know, because I had done some lecturing, you know, as senior scholars often do in the academy. And then the pandemic hit. And I also had plans to write a book, you know, my next book, because I had already written a couple and then also was a co-editor of an anthology. And so I, was, uh, I had my plans set to write my next academic book. Mm -hmm. And I just, the book, I got some good work going on it, but it just wasn't where my heart really was. And so thank goodness I had the wisdom to, and the courage to pause and say, 
what do I really want to do? What would really nourish me for this next phase of whatever's going to happen in my life? And I said, what I really want to do is write auntie stories or auntie stories, depending on how you pronounce it. <laughs> and um, I had thought about a long time writing a book about one of my aunties, uh, one of my favorite aunts. And, you know, at the time being an academic, I thought, oh, I got to do all this research and years of research and looking at archives and going through all these documents and you know, writing like this big academic heavy work, right? And that's what I had thought, but that didn't really feed my soul in the way that I needed at the time. And this was last winter. And um, I said, you know what, I'm just gonna write little auntie stories. And we'll just see what happens, because that's what I want to do right now. And so I did. And so then this is the book that came out, uh, The Auntie Way, Stories Celebrating Kindness, Fierceness, and Creativity. And it's beautiful cover art by Yakima artist, Crystal Buck. And uh, you know, she illustrated all the stories in the book. And you know, I know how to do academic publishing and I'm a pretty fast uh, writer so that you know, my books typically take three years from start to you know, when you can hold the physical copy in your hand. That's fast for academic publishing. Um, but I didn't want to wait that long. And so I said, you know what? Maybe I can just do this myself. And so I met with lots of people who have, you know, done their own publishing and I went for it. And, you know, there's within the academy and within kind of a book world, there's a stigma around self-publishing or some people even call it vanity presses and so forth. And so, you know, I had to really come to terms with that and say, you know what? I know how to do the writing. I don't know the publishing business side of it, but I can learn and I'm willing to give it a try. I'm willing to make mistakes and learn from them. And so I'm gonna go for it. And so I did. And so then that's how Anahoy Mentoring became a small publishing company. And then I published two other books uh, since then of stories and they've been used everywhere, uh, you know, all ages from elementary school classrooms up to doctoral program seminars, you know, that colleagues have used, you know, whether in the K-12 setting or at universities. And, you know, there's a question about books, you know, in academic work, like what's your audience, you know, and the conventional thinking is the narrower the audience, the better. <laughs> in terms of like, then you're like really specific and it's specialized and, you know, really rigidly defined. And that's not universal, but that's the general sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, um, you know, no book is for everybody, you know, sort of conventional thinking like that. But, you know, I, as I really reflected, you know, and took the, the time to pause and think about, okay, well, what do I really think? And what do my cultural teachings really tell me? right? How they instruct me. It's like our stories are for everyone. You know, our traditional stories, our legends, as people sometimes refer to them, you know, and it's, um, people often talk about them as they're for children, but really they're for everyone. And they're intended to be heard, you know, and told and reheard and retold over and over and over. It's not a one and done, like, oh yeah, I heard that story before. Um, 
because the teaching is that we hear the stories differently because we change. You know, we're at a different place in our lives. And so that really helped me, you know, to have the courage to take the steps that I've done in my business. And then, you know, um, it all started with the auntie way. And so I really built up my business around professional development, um, building off of that vision and wanting to have educational systems that are saturated with the love and care of the auntie way. That's what I want to see. That's what I'm excited about. And so that's what I'm doing. And I just try things and see how they go and learn from them and then keep doing them or try something different. <laughs> so when you look at what we normally do when you are an educator thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or an educator, entrepreneur, you know, we are looking at our experiences in the classroom. We're looking at our knowledge base. We're looking at our skill sets. We're looking at either what we do well or what energizes us, or maybe a colleague comes to us or colleagues come to us for ideas or for something uh, very specific that they think that we do well. How did you decide where to focus your entrepreneurial pursuits? Hmm. You're right. I try to decide based on, you know, people I really admire and respect, but they feel held back in some way. And so for, you know, my audience are largely university folks, you know, in my professional development work, not exclusively, but usually it's faculty and then uh, graduate students. And a lot of the struggles that folks are facing are, you know, needing to find that time to write. You know, so much of our success and our ability to um, keep our jobs, to progress toward those degrees that we want, and also to have an impact, right, in implementing our vision within the academy. Um, that all depends on our ability to write, right? Like that we have to have that time to write, to get our ideas down and refined and, and shared. And I see so many brilliant people who, you know, their writing time is just sacrificed to other things because the institutions operate in a way that they don't automatically create that space equitably for all people. And so, you know, there's lots of, you know, writing supports out there, and that's good. And I think, you know, there should be lots of choices. Um, but what I wanted to see was a way to encourage people to write that is, a bit, again, built on that kindness and fierceness and creativity of the auntie way, you know, a, a space where people are nurtured, a space where people are, you know, joyful about the the progress and achievements of others, right? That collective um, spirit um, that kind of breaks or resists that um, rugged individualism mm. that we're often taught or modeled in the academy and that competitiveness, you know, that, oh, if one person succeeds and other people don't, like, I just reject that. 
And so I you know, developed my anti-way writing retreats, and that's like the signature program of my uh, professional development offerings in Anahoy Mentoring. And so every week, there's a diverse set of scholars who gather to write together to talk about writing challenges that we experience. But mostly it's just protected time, you know, where we have timed writing sessions and then I'm available for coaching on demand. If people run into a challenge, we jump into a breakout room and we work through it so that they can get their momentum back going on their important writing project, whether it's a journal article or a book or a grant proposal. And so I'm really proud of that. And it, it meets the needs for, you know, for folks who have that collectivist, you know, yearning like they they don't thrive as like an individual writer you know struggling on their own you know stick your head down and just do the work that that sort of model doesn't work for them and you know as i think about what i want education to be i want it to be the spirit of you know collective growth and celebration and nurturing and so um you know it's really an honor to work with people to do that Awesome, awesome. So, like on your website, uh, I I saw you write about uh, indigenous methodologies. How is that infused in the work that you're doing? Mm, yes, yeah. So, uh, my title is professor of indigenous studies. I'm trained uh, formally as a sociologist, and uh, you know, when I went through the academy. I had to kind of bring that in. Sociology still as a discipline is generally weak on indigenous studies, but it's growing. And so uh, I'm really honored that I got to work with uh, Dr. Yvonne Sherwood uh, at University of Toronto, Mississauga to co-author a chapter for the forthcoming first ever handbook on indigenous sociology. And that's uh, going to be published by Oxford University Press probably next year. Wow. So anyhow, yeah, it's, it's growing. You know, you think about all these institutions across Turtle Island, you know, it, um, they're all on Indigenous homeland, right? Everywhere. Uh, yet, do people even know? <laughs> you know, do they know on whose Indigenous homeland they're on? And so that's such a basic teaching. And so you think about that, and then you think about mm, the growth and acceleration of indigenous studies in the academy. It's really wonderful. And so what I want to see is just this um, you know, wonderful growth and celebration of using our indigenous ways of knowing and being in everything that we do, right? And so of course, professional development you know, and the, the books that I choose to publish, you know, I want those to really be a celebration of Indigenous communities, um, to honor Indigenous place, um, to teach about the values that are important to us, to uh, really put Indigenous ways of knowing and being at the center of everything. And so, of course, under Indigenous leadership, you know, that's uh, a way to do that. But there are also other ways, like how do we take our indigenous teachings and bring them, you know, weave them into what we're doing? We can do that by honoring teachings like the importance of opening and closing, 
you know, so often in Western education systems, you just jump in and do the business, right? And then you leave. And that's really jarring for our spirits. You know, if we're working together, um, you know, you want to acknowledge everyone who's there. You want everyone to have a clear understanding of what we're doing, why we're there. Hold on, I shut my window because my dog's barking. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, and so, yeah, there's a really calling together and to really um, ground people in that purpose. Right? And that's what our spiritual leaders do when we have gatherings, right? There's always an opening, an acknowledgement of who is there in the community. Why are we gathered there? Right? And that brings that collective spirit um, to the front of everybody's minds. And it reminds everybody that you're here to make a contribution. You know, do you know what your gifts are? If you don't, if you're unclear, that's fine. Now you're clear on that. And so let's work on that. Right. And so that's, that's a, a way to apply, you know, our traditional teachings to a contemporary you know, professional development setting. And then another way, just as important is the closing, right. To mark, okay, we've gathered here today. This is what we've done. This is what our plans are next for this collective. Thank you for being here. I acknowledge your presence. I acknowledge your contributions. And so those simple acts, they take time, but it's worth it. Because then it's, things are just done in a good way, right? They're done in a way that everyone can bring their full presence, their full heart. And just think if all business in education systems were, was operated in that way, we wouldn't have, like what I see so often is people just like kind of defensive, you know, or feeling unsupported or unseen. And that's such a shame, you know, that really, that's like the opposite of community. <laughs> and so I think there's just, there's so many examples of this. There's a couple examples. I wanted to share. Awesome. Awesome. I like that. So I want to throw this out there to you because what there's been a lot of talk and I've seen this on Twitter about what it's like to be black in academia. And recently a lot of things came up after what happened to, uh, Hannah Jones and her situation with the 10 year. And, um, and, you know, I follow a lot of uh, uh, black educators who are college professors and a lot of that just started hitting my feet. And I was very happy that she went to an HBCU because when this thing first went down and I don't know her at all, but when it first went down, I even tweeted out that she needs to leave that school and go to an HBCU because I'm not going to fight someone to see my value, right? If you if you gotta, you know, if I gotta threaten to sue you so you can see my value, this is not the institution for me. So I, I, I'm not getting involved with it, I got to go. And um, alhamdulillah, she actually made the decision to roll out. 
So that I, I find it to be, you know, amazing. When you're working with the people you're working with, and you're and you're bringing in these digital indigenous methodologies, and you're having these conversations, how can Native academics bring their whole selves to academia and do so in a way that they themselves, you know, feel honored and respected and feel like they don't have to compromise to fit the system that was never created for us in the first place. <laughs> That's the dream, right? That we don't have to compromise, that we can just be fully, truly ourselves in every space, right? That's the dream. We don't have that, but we do have experiences of it. We know it's possible because we find those spaces, right? They feed our spirits and souls, and then we learn from them. And then we strive to create more of that space for the next generation. And so our subsequent flood program is a good example. That's, whew, it's a rigorous pace, 12 month masters and teacher licensure. That's a lot to cram in. And I like to remind the students, yeah, you're doing a lot. You're coming in. Many of them just graduated undergrad, not all of them, but many of them. And so then they start, boom, the very same day for University of Oregon undergrads. Graduation day is the first day of our uh, master's program. <laughs> There's literally no break. And, um, you know, so they have to meet all the rigorous requirements of the graduate school, as well as all the rigorous requirements of the state to get that teaching license. Wow. It's so much. And guess what? Both systems are super white. <laughs> And they're not designed for us. They're not designed for indigenous children, you know, teachers of indigenous children. They're not designed for teachers who are gonna, you know, partner with tribal nations and indigenous communities, right? And so that's all extra work that we're taking on, right? And sure, some of the students might bring their own teachings. And so they have a, a good understanding and several good models that they've grown up around that they want to replicate some of that. But some of them haven't. Some of them have gone to urban or suburban schools and maybe they haven't had those teachings. Then they've got like triple duty, right? They're like building up that stronger, you know, indigenous educator identity and you know jumping through all the hoops of the white systems and taking on the extra work of thinking strategically of how can i make space for their students and their students families and their students communities um, while they're a new teacher right or a student teacher and so it's a, a lot of work but you know we're all learning and growing and so every year we get better and better and better and I remember um, several years ago, we, we used to have overlap where the program used to be 15 months long, but we chopped it down to 12 in part to save students money so that the students would graduate with less debt, um, you know, or, you know, less costs that had to be outlaid for their education. But anyhow, in the 15 month days, we had overlap in the cohort where the Outgoing cohort would be doing their last summer and the incoming cohort would be doing their first summer. 
And I remember one time when that happened, one of the students told me, oh, that new cohort, they have it easier than we did. <laughs> <laughs> like it was something bad, <laughs> which is understandable, right? That that would, you know, a feeling that way. And I just said, yes. And that's the point, right? We want every generation, now this is a short student generation, but we want every generation coming after us to have it better, right? That's our job. And so um, I think, you know, when I think about your question, that's what I think about is, you know, we don't have that dream fully realized of being able to show up and be fully ourselves in all these spaces. But we're seeing it more and more and more as we connect, as more of us go into leadership roles. Um, and you know, the more people we have in leadership roles, we can change systems, we can change rules, we can change how funding is allocated, right? We can get into spaces where we can have greater influence on how things are done. Yeah, that's how we do it. We use our experience and our power to benefit everyone. That's our responsibility. When you first started this venture, how did you learn the business side of how it's supposed to go, right? <laughs> right you know what I'm saying? Because there's only, you know, there's, there's a, okay, there's a difference between saying, I want to do this, mm-hmm. I need to do this, mm-hmm. and actually this thing becoming a business. Uh, aside from e- e- any legal documents that must be filed with, with your state, but the fact that Money is you wait. Well, you want money to come in, so money is coming in. Money's going out. Books need the balance. You need systems in place. And when you're an educator, and I don't know your background, but if you're an educator and you did not come from a family of entrepreneurs, and all of your degrees are in education or an academic background that is not related to business, then you have a a learning curve. You got to catch up because you need to get that business piece in order to meld it and mesh it and make it align with what you're trying to do on the education side. How did you go about getting that knowledge and how did you know which voices to trust? Because on, on online, you can, whether it be Instagram or LinkedIn or YouTube, because YouTube has a lot of videos. There are a lot of people who just, you know, they just, I can make you seven figures in this amount of time or, you know, a lot of business stuff out there. And you need to be able to see what's out there and know what is real, what can be applied and what you just need to look at, oh, that's trash. And just, I'm not even bothered with that. How did all of that come about for you? That's a great question. I think another challenge to name is that academics, like our skill set, our uh, way that we're trained and taught 
is to try to figure out everything first and then you do something right like that's really the model whereas entrepreneurship is you try something first <laughs> and um, so that's that's the biggest challenge that I see. And, you know, I talk to other academics who are thinking about, you know, doing consulting or starting their own businesses and they're looking for advice. And, you know, that's what I did. I talked to other academics who've gone down that pathway and asked them, you know, for 20 minutes of their time. And then I was really respectful of that because that's something you learn as an entrepreneur is the value of your time. Right. And, um, and that's so important, especially if you know you're giving like to an academic job that you love, and then you're also trying to build this business you know, that you also really love. Um, that time is so precious, you know. And then of course you have our family, our community, you know, taking care of yourself, all of that. Um, and so you, know, I talk to people, and that's how I learn. I talk to people whose work I admired and respected, and um, you know, ask them about their journey, about, you know, what they wish they would have done differently, perhaps. Um, and that was feedback that they gave me as well as, you know, the mindset of just try something. It's okay, you know, um, just, um, just try it out and see. And so, you know, I, I did that when I first started, I read about all the different business models and like, oh my gosh, you know, like just sort of what form do you want your business to take? And um, it was kind of overwhelming. And so I thought, oh, probably LLC, but I don't know, that seems too hard for me right now. So I'm just going to do individual sole proprietor. And so then I got that set up and then I quickly learned like, oh, you know what? That's not actually what I want. What I want is LLC. So right off the bat, I failed. <laughs> But I tried something and that led to me learning. And you know, about the same time, um, I had gone to an arts and crafts supply store and they had a lot of like teacher sort of things that you know we would put in our classroom, you know, if you're an elementary teacher. And they had a poster with, I think it has like a sun with some sunglasses, and it said, mistakes mean I'm trying. And I love that. <laughs> Sometimes my university student evaluations, they'll say something like, she seems kind of like a kindergarten teacher, which I think is wonderful, especially now that I'm tenured, because I don't have to worry about little uh, snarky remarks <laughs> harming my <laughs> professional progress. But I think that's such a compliment because you, know, you think about the wisdom of five and six-year-olds, right? where they're just so present, so observant, they're really tuned in to exactly what's the vibe around them. Like they haven't been conditioned to kind of just accept a lot of BS, right, as normal. Um, and when they encounter BS or some kind of contradiction, they're kind of like, what's going on? Like, why is this happening? You know, you said this, but you're doing that, right? They're so great at that. And so, I love that poster. I have to get it in a more prominent place so I can look at it some more. But I really believe in that. You know, just go for it. Just try something, you know. Um, and I'm, you know, on Twitter, I saw somebody posted something like, oh, how? what's something you can say that says your age without having to say your age and a young person wouldn't understand it? 
and people had put things like Netflix used to come in the mail and stuff like that. And um, I put card catalog because I missed those. That was so fun, you know, digging through, looking in the library. Um, and so I'm telling that story because like, I'm a little bit technology phobic. And like, I consider myself not good at technology. But today in doing business, especially during the pandemic, like you got to try it, you got to go for it. Like there's so many tools that will really help you and support you, but you got to be willing to try it. And so I've dabbled with that. And then uh, just last month, I told myself, you know what, July is my month for trying new technology. And so I just tried a bunch of different software. And for the first time ever, I you know, tried QuickBooks. And I don't know hardly anything about QuickBooks, but I'm learning it and I could see how, yeah, this could be a great tool for me, especially when it comes time to file taxes. You know, that's going to take a big burden off of me because I was just kind of doing things in Excel and, um, you know, so this I think will be easier for me, even though it's challenging to learn it. So, yeah, I don't know anything about that stuff, but I know that I'm a intelligent person and I'm willing to try, I'm willing to make mistakes. And I know that the real value is in my learning. And so that's that's how through trial and error and making mistakes, that's how I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so what were some of your initial, initial challenges uh, when you started to launch your business? Um, I think uh, overcoming I think the biggest one was overcoming um, like that shyness or that, you know, don't call too much attention to yourself. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people have their websites is their name and that's like kind of like considered a best practice. I couldn't do it. I couldn't make a website my name. I was too embarrassed or shy or something. And um then choosing a business name. And at first, before I you know, filed the paperwork, I was going with Black Bear Mentoring. Um, and that's you know, one of my favorite, um, more than human relations. And um, my dog, my beloved res dog, his name is Enohui, which is Black Bear in our Yakima language. And then I thought, you know what? I, I want to call my business Enohui Mentoring. I was like, that's not English. It's hard for people to say or spell maybe. I don't know. Uh, so I wasted a bunch of time and energy on that. <laughs> and then um, finally just asked some friends, you know, did a quick poll. And I was like, what do you think? Black Bear Mentoring or Enohui Mentoring? And they almost all said Enohui Mentoring. So that helped me go for it. And then just, you know, this is a small example, but it was big to me at that time. It slowed me down. It felt like, you know, the biggest decision in the world. <laughs> um, but then, you know, that tough decision made, then I, you know, just kept going. And then, you know, every time I publish a book or offer a workshop, you know, I get nervous. Um, you know, we're, We've got like we soak up these vibes of imposter syndrome, you know, mm -hmm. education, and you know we're taught to like be quiet, like that's what will keep you safe. 
but really that's not true we know that and so this you know just pushing back against that like feeling that fear and then just moving forward through it you know being really clear on i want to share this book with the world for these reasons these are the teachings in this book that i think are important that i think can help people um and then just going for it and then if you know there are mistakes like typos or whatever you know just be open to learning about those and fixing them you know it's all right um big new york publishers they got mistakes in their books all the time and so it's like great that's something i have in common with bazillion dollar you know publishing houses <laughs> we both make mistakes <laughs> and so um yeah, those are some of the challenges. They're ongoing, you know, but I, I think the more you do it, the faster you are at going through whatever process that works for you, right? And I can't really imagine having no challenges, you know, because I think as long as you're growing, you're going to have challenges. And that's a good thing, because that means that you're doing something that's new to you, right? It's either you're doing it bigger or in a different way, or you're serving a different audience. And so that's what it's all about, right? If you want it to be static, you just don't change anything, right? Just keep on doing the same thing forever. But for creative people, and I think all educators are creative. I think all educators are optimists too. Like, why would you bother if you weren't? <laughs> So, you know, that, oh, I'm just going to do the same thing forever. That, that doesn't really work for us, I don't think. I hear you. I hear you. And uh, something that you said earlier was really awesome. And I, I want to say this before I ask you the last question is about, you know, when you work in educational institutions, whether it be K through 12 or higher ed, there has to be something to force it to change. If not, change comes at such a slow pace versus, as you mentioned earlier, through business, you could say, I want to do this tomorrow and plan it out. And next week, it's out in the market and then you can always iterate, iterate, iterate and get it to where you want to. And it just, you know, one of the things the pandemic has done, it has made institutions move and do things that, you know, even though someone at the president level and provost had, someone you know had been having discussions about online learning and what the university could do. And maybe they had a few programs out there, but there was no real push behind it, no real weight, no real resources. And then all of a sudden it was like, we got to do this now. And it forced them to move immediately. And I'm hoping in higher ed, as well as K through 12, that instead of them looking at it as okay, we're going to go back to normal that they just make it better. And then when we can sort of all kind of breathe again, 
they keep those in place for those students who prefer that or who want that or who are, or who need that because maybe they are they're working mm-hmm. and and they need to be able to you know have that on those online options uh, i hope they i hope they just go let's just make this better let's refine it let's iterate it let's really make this as best as we can to meet the needs of our students and then figure out a way to bring more technology into our face to face when we can all go back quote unquote as normal as as opposed to saying okay y'all the vaccines are here it's working we have all this population going on we can breathe again and we've even though we've just spent you know 2.5 million dollars whatever on this stuff we're going to just we don't care about that anymore just okay it's there we we uh, i hope that things get better i agree yeah dr will there's a lot of wisdom that you're sharing right there you know, in what you just shared, you're talking about how do we maximize opportunity and access to education, which is what we should all be working on all the time, right? And yeah, this um, have this desire to return to normal, right? It's like normal wasn't working. Or normal was working great for a really narrow group. <laughs> and for everyone else, you know, we had to like contort ourselves to fit in there or just had no chance or, you know, um, and that's not what it should be. You know, institutions, you know, make grand statements about, oh, we want to serve the public and we want to figure out ways, gosh, can't we reach those marginalized communities and rural communities better if only we could, right? It's like, well, you can, yeah, guess what? Yeah, and it requires changing the way we do things. Yeah, and investing, you know, in those changes, which is gonna, you know, spread resources around, you know, in a more equitable manner, you know, so that more students from more communities can participate. And guess what? We all benefit from that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No one's a write-off. It's going back to that, that foundational teaching that I shared earlier, mm-hmm. right? About seeing everyone, acknowledging everyone has gifts, and then helping to support them to find ways to use those gifts, because we know we benefit from that. So before we go, how does an educator know that they have the right mindset, the right temperament to actually go into consulting. Even though I am all for multiple streams of income because I do not want my school district to be the only place I get a check from in the event they fire me or there's budget cuts and they have no choice but to let me go. I don't want to be like, I got a mortgage. How does, how is this going to get taken care of? Cause they're the only people who are bringing, who are, you know, allowing me to bring in some sort of income. So I believe in multiple streams of income. Now I don't know what that means for every educator. And I don't know if every educator should create a business. I think that's a personal decision. But for those who are thinking this could be a route for them, how do they know 
that they have what it takes to do so. I say every educator has what it takes, right? You show up, you are prepared, you're organized, you execute plans, you're constantly revising and learning from your practice, you're consistently in community, you're thinking about the well being of a room full of young people. Like you definitely have what it takes. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if you want to do it, um, I would say important things to think about are what feeds your soul, mm. right? What, what fills your heart, what lights you up? Because that's what we want more of in the world, right? We don't need more people weighed down with more obligation, you know? Um, but what really, what do they love to do that they know they're good at? Um, that lights them up. Wow. That's what I would say. Because oh. that's you got that, you're going to help people and they're going to be happy to support your dream to do that work. That's what I always tell my clients. I say, thank you for being a partner in my dream. You know, as I work to help them. Wow. What a great way to close. Thank you, uh, Dr. Michelle Jacob, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Dr. Will. It's my pleasure. You are welcome. Now, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode is going to be an Apple podcast, Google podcast, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible. I need you to subscribe, follow, and share it on your networks and the people that are in your circle. And though I am on all major podcast platforms, I'm trying to go grow on Apple Podcasts. So please listen, subscribe, and leave me some reviews uh, because I'm trying to be found and I'm trying to get Oprah on the show. And I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Michelle Jacob, for coming on and dropping so many gems. And I'd like to thank you again for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show. As always, people, invest in you. EDU, peace.